Our, our text as we begin this Advent series is going to be Isaiah chapter 9, a familiar Christmas passage. If you have a Bible or device would like to turn there, we'll have the text on the monitors for you in just a couple minutes as we read that. Pray with me and let's ask for the Spirit's help as we go into his word and receive from him. Father in heaven, we are going into our Bibles, which we are confident are words from your very heart and mind, mouth, empowered and fueled by your spirit. And so we come with a hunger and an expectation for you to feed our souls today. And we do pray and ask for this very interaction to take place that, that you would, in a sense, speak these words, that they would be sown into our hearts and into our lives, that they would find their mark in our soul and produce the desired intent, the intent behind you speaking them in the first place. So may the word be mixed with faith in our hearts as we listen receive, trust, believe, apply, and enjoy what comes from your spirit today in Jesus' name. Amen. I have, I have never flown an airplane, uh, which means that I have never had the personal experience of what I'm told every pilot needs to experience in your training somewhere along the learning to be a pilot You'll be up at about 3,500 feet above the planet and your teacher will shut off the engine of the airplane that you are flying. I don't know what that feels like. I've never done that. I've never actually, I've been on many airplanes. I've never been on an airplane where an engine has failed, but every pilot is trained to deal with engine failure. And I can only surmise what that must feel like, especially if you only have one engine to begin with, and it goes out. Now, planes are designed to continue to go some distance. They're able to maintain something, and if there's multiple engines, many of them are designed to continue to fly. Many of them can fly and land safely on fewer engines than what they were built with. Nevertheless, once the engine goes out there's got to be a sinking feeling something's got to happen inside your gut and in your heart as you feel immediately what was causing all the thrust to maintain elevation has ceased and you begin to descend you begin to go down to the novice pilot, wannabe pilot, student being taught how to fly an airplane. I can only imagine what is going on inside. Why are we going down? <laughs> wow, we're going down fast. Wow, the ground is looking bigger. Why is my stomach in my throat? I can just only imagine the feeling. I've not personally experienced that, but I have had at times the experience of losing hope. For a moment, a day, a week, a season, where somehow hope shuts down, stalls out. And I surmise, I imagine that what I feel in moments like that has got to be very similar to what it feels like to be in an airplane and have the engine stop. You begin to descend. You begin to go down. And once you start descending, you continue to descend faster and faster and faster. It's an interesting thing about the Christian life, about living inside God's kingdom. We're going through Advent, and uh, a Boeing 747 happens to have four jet engines. And our series in Advent happens to have four topics, the first one being hope. 
And I'd like to just draw the parallel of each one of our Advent topics being one of those four engines. We were made, designed to fly in God's kingdom with those engines running, providing the thrust, the energy to keep us elevated, able to ascend, keep us from crashing. I've seen people fly through, live through some very challenging storms, difficulties in life. Because hope existed, hard trials, significant setbacks, extended sufferings were all seen through to the other side because hope was present and functioning in their soul. I've also seen situations where it seems like even a small, seemingly insignificant trial devastates and causes one's soul to descend so fast, faith fails because of an absence of hope. I'm grateful for Christmas. I'm glad for this season because it gives us a chance to come back each year to these primary categories that we were designed as God's children to live by. Let's read our text together, Isaiah chapter 9. We'll read the first seven verses. A text that is designed to ignite and infuse hope into hearts that lack it. Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's going to draw from this text three simple points that are showing us through a process from difficulty into hope. Our text begins with deep darkness, brings hope by presenting a great light, and then expounds that great light as being the great king. So we'll start with deep darkness. We enter into a context in history where this text was written to a people without hope. People living in Jerusalem were in a bad way at this particular time in history. For one, they had a bad king. His name was Ahaz. He was not a good king. If you ever read through your Bible, the Judges and First and Second Kings, you realize it's kind of a rolling of the dice. Each morning you wake up, read another chapter, it's going to be a good king, going to be a bad king. We've got seen more bad kings than good kings. And Right now, we're with Ahaz. He was not 
a good king. Here's how he's described in 2 Kings chapter 16. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. That was his legacy. People were struggling under a bad king. They also happened to live at a time when the surrounding nations were declaring war against them. Their enemies were attacking them. Their enemies were threatening them. And at this point in history, not entirely successful, but they were in war. The neighboring nations were coming against them to overtake them. They were attacking them. And so they're living in a time, the people living in Jerusalem at this time, they got a lousy king, they got angry neighbors who were declaring war on them. And the king goes further and leads them away from the Lord. Isaiah gives a word from the Lord to Ahaz. Be careful, be quiet, do not be afraid. Ahaz, instead of heeding to God's word, seeks out another source of help and makes an agreement with the king of Assyria. And in that process of negotiating with Assyria makes a serious compromise in the temple. He removes the altar. He moves the altar of the temple of God. If you were studying with us a couple weeks ago, we talked about the altar, first thing in place. First of all, we're worshipers. Most important thing, we start here. Everything about uniting mankind with God is represented on this altar. But according to history, Ahaz follows the lead of the king of Assyria, removes this altar, goes, sets it over back over here, sets up a new altar, and in so doing, violates everything that the people of God stand for and believe. God has an argument, makes a case against them. If you do have a Bible and you want to flip back, maybe you're familiar with chapter 5. It's the vineyard of the Lord or the song of the vineyard. And so God speaks to the people, including King Ahaz, and he makes this case. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Got people that have forsaken the Lord. God that is working on their behalf, building them, strengthening them, laying this out, setting them up as the people of God, and yet they refuse him. And God says, what more could I have done for you? And now I will hand you over to the ones you've turned to. God gives them over to their own heart's desire. But in the midst of it, he seeks out a remnant for himself. Let me read a few more verses from chapter 8, verses 16 through 22. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching, 
And to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Everything's going wrong for these people. Everything is bad in life. Nothing is going right. They're not responding well. God is challenging them. Now God is speaking to them. You won't come with me. You won't heed my word, so I will give you over to the things that your hearts have been pulling you towards. You see, these people did not ultimately lose hope because of the troubles that they were facing. They lost hope because they would not trust in the God who spoke words of hope to them. Often things don't go our way. And when I said I've seen people go through difficult times, You are those people. Many of you are. You've seen difficult times. You've gone through trials. You've gone through hard suffering. Many of you, I've seen you soar, energized by God's Spirit to fly through those difficulties. One of the points I want to sort of drive home this afternoon is that it's not necessarily the circumstances of life that deplete our hearts of hope. It's not necessarily good things that happen to us that infuse our hearts with hope, but I want to redirect our attention and our expectation. Is it's about how we receive from the Lord. It's how we see and hear and receive the words that He speaks. That's the engine, that's the fuel, that's the source of hope when God speaks. I've been a Christian for about 50 years now and seen some good times and some not so good times. Walked through a variety of trials and experienced some wonderful times and and joys in life. But when I look back over it all, I begin to realize what, what has actually fueled my soul with hope has not been, oh, we happen to be in a good season and things are going well always without fail has been the times when you know in your soul the Lord spoke. It could be good times, it could be not so good times, but what changes, what works inside, what, what gives that, that, that lift and the, and, the, and the thrust that helps us maintain altitude is when God speaks, is when his word finds its place inside my own soul. When hope is lost, it's not just a matter of, oh, things turn south, things are going bad, lost my job, lost this, you know, life circumstance. No, it's, it's in the soul where you start asking these hard questions. Now, maybe, maybe God's not going to come through on this one. Maybe God has forgotten Maybe God doesn't care as much as I thought he did last year. Maybe he means me harm. Maybe he's not paying attention. Maybe he's not as good as I thought. Maybe he's not as strong as I thought. These are the kinds of things. How the word of God lands on you. When it lands on as doubt, it turns to unbelief. That's what shuts the engine off. That's when hope diminishes. And that's when we begin to descend. The folks that we're reading about were in what the Bible calls deep darkness. Everything was going wrong, inside and out, inside their soul, in their community, in their lives. Could you script a worse situation? If you were writing the story, 
but there's point number two. It's into this deep darkness that a great light shines. It's into that situation that God by his spirit says, I'm going to shine a light into this. God shines light into this darkness. God has given them over, but he has not given up on them. And maybe that's a word for you. Maybe you're struggling through some of the consequences of some persistent decisions that you've made and you feel stuck and you feel caught and there is a sense of being given over to something. I want you to know that even if and when we may be given over to something, God has not given up on you. It's into that particular kind of deep darkness that God says, I'm going to shine a light there into that situation. God bringing light in darkness. First step of creation, day one. Genesis 1, verse 2. There's darkness over the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. Darkness over the face. We're talking about void. We're talking about emptiness. We're talking about formless chaos, no purpose, no sense of order, baseless, futile. Everything is chaotic. It is a mess. Now, there is a doctrine, there is a truth that I believe that God has created everything out of nothing. Genesis 1-2 is really not the proof text verse for that doctrine. Here we're trying to get a picture of God having darkness, this void, this, this chaos, this formlessness, and he speaks into it, let there be light. And when you read through Genesis chapter 1 for the first time, it's a little confusing because you assume on day 1 he created the sun. But you keep reading and all of a sudden you get to day 4 and you realize on day 4 he creates the sun. Because the only light we know is the sun. And so if he created light, surely he created the sun the first day. But no, he did not. And he's telling us something different. The light of God precedes the sun. Just like the light of God proceeds the sun. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, in the new heavens and the new earth, it says there's no sun. There's no need for it because the Lord is there and the Lord himself is the light. So at the very beginning, we've got the light of God coming into this void, into this chaos, into this darkness, and he shines his light. The same light that will take us into eternity. In our text, the people are walking in darkness. Presents us ignorance and confusion and disorder and wickedness. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. It's not merely a, a lack of knowledge. It's just not like I just didn't know better. I'm just stuck in darkness because I was ignorant and I didn't hear. No, it's... It's more than that. The, the biblical deep darkness explains it is deeper. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So it's not just a matter of knowing. It's not just a matter of information. It's a matter of what's, what's drawing and pulling our hearts. Walking in darkness is depicted as living life without the Lord, separate from the Lord, ignoring the Lord, turning our backs on the Lord. That's what the Bible would refer to as walking in, in darkness. It's when we're living life without the Lord as our source and our guide, when his words are not landing on hearts of faith that we're receiving and following, but rather rejecting, meaning, we're walking in darkness. Hope in the Lord is given out. That engine is not running. And the plane is descending. But God shines such a light, such a kind of light that is capable of penetrating 
that dark heart. That's the kind of light it is. Even a, a, light, a, a heart that is walking in darkness because it loves the darkness, even into that, the light of God can shine into. Now, it's not the light of the law. Only able to tell you what's wrong with you. What you've done that you shouldn't have and what you didn't do that you should have done. That's how the law, the light of the law, comes into our lives. And I have to ask you, is that how you view God? Is this, this is who God is. He's the one that's going to tell me what's wrong with me. He's the one who's going to point out all the things I should have done that I didn't. He's going to list off all the things I did that I should not have done. That's who the Lord is, which is why I would prefer not to have this meeting with him. I would prefer not to have this appointment with the guy who's only going to tell me everything that's wrong with me. I really am not excited about that kind of light shining on me. But the law is necessary, but it's not the light. Think about a good doctor who wants to help and heal you of a disease that you have. So you come to the doctor and the doctor diagnoses what's wrong with you and says, this is what's wrong with you. I need you to believe this assessment. There's something wrong. But I also want you to hear more than just, there's something wrong. I want you to hear that I'm here to heal you, to help you. And so you need to trust the diagnosis that's being given. Now, can you imagine, be a silly thought, of a doctor that only diagnoses problems and puts forth no effort to help or to heal, offers no prescription, no medicine, no remedy, no nothing. This is, this is my calling. This is all I do is I go around and I tell people what's, what's wrong with them. And then you're on your own. Do you somehow envision God being that kind of doctor? The light does expose. But the light of the law has no power to change and bring us into the light of the Lord, but the light of God shines into our darkness. But his light is so much more powerful than the light of the law. Which is why we have this wonderful third point about the great king where Isaiah the prophet begins to expound. Let me tell you about the light that shines into deep darkness. It's not a law. It's a person. The Lord will provide a great king. Now, by the first half, but more than half of the whole book of Isaiah is an emphasis on a king. There are other sort of titles for the Savior and the Lord. There's other aspects of who he is. Later in Isaiah, it will be a servant, a suffering servant, but the first, like, 39 chapters, the emphasis is centered around God is going to provide an unusually wonderful king for his people. This is the message that is supposed to instill and ignite hope in our hearts. There are more personal ways that the Lord is characterized in Scripture, like a, a friend. What a, what a glorious way to think about the Lord. But here the emphasis is on a king. A king that points to a kingdom. A king that, whose character is laid out and described 
that points to the way he reigns and the nature of the kingdom. Isaiah takes over half his book to present the Lord as providing a great king in order to help us, to help orient us to this king. A good king with a kingdom filled with people whose hearts are aligned toward this king results in the kind of glory and purpose and joy and peace that God designed for us. And so he breaks in, a child is born, a child, a child is born, a son is given. And here we begin to see something about how hope functions in our heart. The child isn't born yet, but the text speaks in present tense. A child is born. A child. Helpless, needs to be changed, can't feed itself, can't speak yet. Incapable of really contributing anything as a king, unable to do, not, hadn't developed any skills, or knowledge, nothing, just there's a child. And yet, for God to say, this is the light God has shown, a child is born. This is what ignites hope. Child doesn't have to be grown up. Child doesn't have to be present. Child doesn't have to be sitting on the throne. Just God saying a child is born. And the word of God, empowered by the spirit, fires up that engine. And the lift, the thrust, begins to function. Alec Montier writes this. He says, this hope is sure. Chapter 9, 1 through 7 is couched in past tenses. The, the future is written as something which has already happened. For it belonged to the prophetic consciousness of men like Isaiah to cast themselves forward in time and then look back on the mighty acts of God, saying to us, look forward to it. It is certain. He's already done it. Because of this confidence, Isaiah can place the light of 9, 1 in immediate proximity with 8, 22. Deep darkness, distress, anguish. Not because it will immediately happen, but because it is immediately evident to the eye of faith. Those walking in darkness can see the light ahead and are sustained by hope. This is an amazing thing about God's word. It is true always. And faith, when it's functioning in our lives, is not looking at the calendar, is not dismayed by dates. It's just what, what God has said. Now, this is a, a, a strange thing. This is a hard thing that all Christians work through and mature through and begin to, to realize, oh, it's, it's not about the date. It's about the word. You say, well, it's, it's not happening today. I'm not experiencing it. Yeah, I, I know, but, but faith isn't caught up with the calendar. Faith is completely engrossed in what God has said, and it is true. It's just a matter of time. And so my heart is settled, and the engine fires up, and the plane begins to lift, and I begin to soar because I know that what God said is true. It will come to pass. Waiting is okay when you're sure about what you're waiting for. So he gives us this child, this son, and has names. We're given four wonderful names of this child. Names to reveal his character, names to reveal his abilities, and this is where it gets good. Because the answer isn't just Jesus. It's the solution to your problem. It's, well, it's Jesus. Yes, just trust Jesus. I, I know how that sounds. But here's... Here's what's fascinating when you begin to look closer at who this Jesus is. Then it begins to fill out. Then the amazement begins to bubble up 
and stir up and strengthen your soul? Well, what kind of child is this that the government's going to be on his shoulders? And Isaiah gives us these names to deepen and strengthen our hope in him. Shallow views of the sun will result in shallow faith. Engines of hope that keep stalling out, but a deep understanding of the sun results in a deep faith, which produces a deep hope. And so he says, here's, here's the names. Wonderful counselor. That's what they call him. When you meet this king and you realize how he reigns and how he rules, you realize he's a wonderful counselor. Now, you and I use the word wonderful often, casually, and, you know, we use it for a variety of things. But you, you do need to understand that in the scriptures, when that word is being used, it's almost exclusively referring to God. It, it always has this divine not always, but most of the time is this divine connection. It's wonder. It's supernatural. It's divine. So he's not just a really good counselor. He's a wonder counselor. Literally, wonder counselor is what we're being told here. Supernatural counselor. Strange, amazing counselor. Finds solutions, answers, speaks and discerns right from wrong, good from evil in, in ways that we are just blind to and unaware of. And yet this wonder counselor is able to cut through, see through, identify, knows how to refuse evil, how to choose the good, Isaiah 7.15. People were hoping for a Solomon-like king. You remember Solomon, as a young man, appointed king. Heir of David takes over the kingdom, but he's young, he's inexperienced, and he prays to the Lord to give him wisdom. And then we have this wonderful story about the two women that show up before the king, both claiming to be the mother of the same child. In, in a stroke of divine wisdom. Solomon speaks in a way to mete out the truth, cut the baby in half. And immediately, the true mother's heart sprang forward. It was a moment of divine wisdom that everybody talked about and everybody felt amazed at. Although Solomon didn't finish well. But in the time that we're reading Isaiah chapter 9, they don't have Solomon, they have Ahaz. He's like really stupid. He's not wise. He has no discernment. He cannot tell right from wrong. He's desperate. He's, he's running to this. He's running to that. He's running away from what is good. He's running toward what is evil. He he moved the altar of God. I mean, how, how stupid can you get to know anything about the history of God's people and what God has set up with the temple and everything? He says, ah, just move it. The son that was given, we know, is Jesus. We're celebrating Christmas, incarnation. He's the son that was given. And we read about Jesus even at 12 years old in the temple. Amazing the teachers and the people listening, not only with his questions, but with his answers. At 12 years old, this boy is speaking in the temple. And everybody's like, what is up with this kid? Who, who is this amazing answers. Later, he begins his public ministry. He begins to teach, amazing the people with his teaching. What kind of teaching is this, they say? This unusual authority. He talks differently. He seems to, like, really know. Like, he knows God or something. Like, he really understands this stuff. Of course, we have the wonderful hindsight. The greatest display of his wisdom 
that seemed so extremely foolish to so many, Paul referred to Christ and him crucified as both the power and the wisdom of God. We know from our study in Ezra and Nehemiah, the true temple was restored. It was Christ. The true Lamb of God was sacrificed on the cross. And everybody said, what a foolish thing. What a loser he must have been. How false it all was. There he is dying on the cross. And yet through that sacrifice, we're here. We're saved. We're in the faith, in the family of God because he did that wise act. We need a true king who is wonderfully wise, who knows how to break through the chaos of this broken, fallen, and rebellious world and shine a light into it that truly makes a way for us to be brought out of this darkness and into his marvelous light. We need a wonderful counselor. His second name is Mighty God. He's a divine warrior. He's able to reign and he's able to lead his people into victory regardless of how strong the enemy Now, in an attempt to avoid war, the foolish king Ahaz makes an alliance with another king to bolster his own army in order to win. God ends up using Assyria to take them captive and defeat them. The promise of God in verse 4 of what we read at the beginning of this message was that the rod of the oppressor you have broken as in the day of Midian. Does that sound familiar? It's the story of Gideon. Gideon was a judge called by God to fight against the Midianites. Only there, the problem was his army was too big. So we have foolish King Ahaz saying, my army's too small. I better hire and make a treaty with Assyria to have a larger army. And God is showing his might by referring to Gideon. And so Gideon has an army of 32,000. And God says, oh, there's way too many here. I don't want to do it with 32,000. And so the army gets reduced down to 10,000. And God says, I don't want to do this with 10,000. It's still way too many. Sort them out until finally there's only 300, 300 left. And God says, now I've got something I can work with. Because when I work with the 300, no one's going to say, by my own might, we saved ourselves. You are going to say with absolute assurance it was the Lord that saved us. And there was a mighty deliverance. A magnificent battle was won that started with 300 soldiers and a mighty God. And that's how he wanted it to play out. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, So then what becomes of our boasting? He answers his own question. It is excluded. <laughs> it's gone. Nothing to boast about. It's gone. Because we have a mighty God. A great warrior. Third and everlasting father. You're you noticing the aspect of divinity in each of the names. Each one is drawing attention to the divine. God is, in a sense, saying... I'm going to be your salvation. An everlasting father is next. Wonderful counselor, this mighty God is also an everlasting father. He has wisdom beyond. He has 
power that is beyond to rule and to lead his people into victory. He can judge well with his wisdom. But this also includes the most personal and intimate relationship of someone who carries authority and responsibility for another, a father. We need a great king. Think about a great king. Did you think that you could call this great king your father? This other dimension gets brought in, very personal, very intimate. Isaiah 64, like the father who made us. Isaiah 63, and who delivered us. As well as a father who disciplines us from Proverbs chapter 3. And the father who shows compassion to his children, Psalm 103. All these aspects of a father, this fatherly love toward his children. It would be enough to have a great king who is a wonderful counselor and who was a mighty God, but in addition, he is to us an everlasting father. We see an aspect of the true victory that he leads us into, provides for us, and and brings to us. This is the most personal, the most secure, the most safe of relationships into the arms of a loving father. This father is everlasting. It was the, the problem for these people. Like I said, if you read through your Bible, it's like, okay, on Tuesday the king is good, on Wednesday the king is bad, on Thursday the king is bad. It's like, even if they happen to get a good one, well, just wait, there's a bad one just around the corner. So even if times were good, times wouldn't always be good, they couldn't always be good. The next king is lined up to kill his predecessor and take the throne, and he's evil and doing bad things. So the light that shines is saying, I'm going to give you an everlasting father. I'm going to give you this great king who will always be the great king, will always reign on his throne forever. It's eternal. He will never cease filling that role. So now we not only have all the good things from this great king, we know we have it forever. Never change, never lose it. The last name is Prince of Peace, and we're going to talk about peace next week, so we'll just leave that one be for now and pick up the concept of peace next Sunday. Worship team, you can come on up. I'm concluding. Isaiah chapter 9 is presenting to us a king. And the word of the Lord about this king is designed to ignite in your heart, in my heart, hope. These seven verses are intending to fire up that engine of hope. We read them and we believe them. And we have hope functioning in our hearts And we begin to maintain altitude, even increase altitude, because God has spoke these promises. And of course, here we are with the wonderful hindsight. That child was born. He came. People have seen him, touched him. We have record of his life, his ministry, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. As Bill said at the beginning of the meeting, he came, but he's coming again. And so you and I are still living in between realities. We're still living in, well, we have so much, but we don't have everything yet. And these are the times where we can easily lose elevation, lose hope, distracted by the circumstances. Where is God? Here's the promises. Here's what I'm experiencing. And we're called to the same hope that the people suffering under King Ahaz were called to. 
God speaks it. We trust it. Elevates our hearts. Strengthens us for the journey. And we say with assurance, with hope, with gladness, it's just a matter of time. It's all about dates. And the dates don't matter. What I know to be true matters. Because it will come to pass. I don't know if you're struggling today with a lack of hope. I know from personal experience it's a terrible place to be in. It's a kind of a difficult, gut-wrenching sense to have. It's what I imagine being in an airplane with no engine feels like. And you feel like you're coming down. And the longer you feel like you're coming down, the faster you're coming down. And I want you to know that the Lord sees, the Lord knows. He's come into situations of deep darkness. And into those situations, he knows how to shine a bright and glorious light. And that that word find its place in your heart this afternoon. Let's, let's stand. Father, pray that your spirit would do that. If there be one or ten, if there be many in the room that are dangling, drifting, coasting, trying to glide without that wonderful thrust of this glorious engine of your kingdom, called hope hope comes from seeing this glorious light hope increases when we recognize the light was this child this son that was given hope increases when we realize this this son is a wonderful counselor and a mighty God and an everlasting father and a prince of peace these are the things that fuel hope in our soul and I pray that you do it now in each one of our hearts. I pray that this would be the best Christmas ever for one reason and one reason alone, that we see more clearly the gift of this great light that you've given this child, this son, that has become our salvation. Strengthen and encourage our hearts for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.